You're listening to the Strategies at Work podcast for November 2010. Today's episode is titled Facing Economic Disaster. One of the tests of metal of any person is how he or she handles adversity. And one of the most common tests is financial adversity. For those who view independence and self-sufficiency as virtues, financial calamity causes them to turn inward to find answers. Frequently, they withdraw and isolate themselves, taking pride in seeking to solve problems by themselves. The scriptures, however, teach that the way to face adversity is through humility, submission, and dependence on others. When facing economic calamity, humble yourself and submit to godly parents, natural and or spiritual, who can guide you to alignment with biblical principles. And now Dr. Chester brings us the message titled, Facing Economic Disaster. Let's go back in time. Let's learn from history. Can you believe that there may have been a time where this country was in a deep recession? Where unemployment was over 20%? Where in New York City alone, 90,000 people had their homes foreclosed on? Chicago people were eating out of trash cans? And can you believe that it was all generated by greed and speculation? The banks were in a crisis. You couldn't borrow any money. Business was pretty much frozen. Can you believe that? Does that kind of sound like today? Well, that is the recession of 1873. And up until that time, it was the most severe recession in the history of the United States. Ultimately, the recession of the 1930s became even worse. In fact, we called it a depression. Now, some people think a recession is when their neighbor is out of work, and a depression is when they're out of work. So the 30s arguably were a little bit worse, but still you had unemployment around 25%, and you had people in bread lines, and the country was, was struggling. And now we're in a similar situation today. And if you look at the 1920s and you say, okay, what led to the 30s? What do you see in the 20s? A lot of greed, a lot of speculation. And now here in 2010, what's led to where we are today? A lot of greed, a lot of speculation. So do we see a pattern here? This is not the first time we've been here. You know, we've been to this, uh, this rodeo before. And maybe you ought to pay attention to what other people have learned from going through these kinds of financial calamities. So what do you do when you face financial disaster or financial calamity? Well, let's go back to, uh, to 1844. A young man named Harry is born. His, his actual name was Henry, but they called him Hank and Harry, different, different nicknames. His, dad, his dad's name was John Henry. And so he, was, he had his dad's second name, was his first name. He was born to uh, a German family. Uh, they were immigrants to the United States. They had come here to, uh, to find a better opportunity, to enjoy the prosperity of this country. John Henry was, a, was a, in the brick business. He spent his time making bricks, all kinds of bricks. And so when his son got old enough, his son went to work for him in the brick business. And so Henry learned a lot about how to, to, to deal with materials, how to deal with uh, lots of materials, the mass quantities of materials. And he learned a lot about how to run a business from his dad. 
along the way, he went to school. He learned bookkeeping. And so he became the bookkeeper for the business. Now, he did all of this while he was going to school and while he was working his mother's garden. His mother had a big garden, and he loved to work his mother's garden. In fact, that was his favorite thing to do. Now, his mother was the daughter of a pastor, and this, this guy was a Lutheran pastor, and so he had trained his daughter very, very diligently in Scripture. So Henry's mother was a very strong Bible teacher. She made Henry memorize Scripture, study Scripture. She never allowed Henry to go to public school. You know, public school was, was birthed in the 1830s. Sadly, it was not birthed with the right motive, even though it was birthed by Christians. The Christians that birthed it had the agenda to control the Catholics. And so that was what public education was initially all about. And Henry's mom recognized that this was a bad agenda. Even though there were Christian men and women behind it, they recognized it was not good. So she says, I'm not sending my child to that environment where I have to every night reprogram the bad program they're getting there because they're hearing bad stuff. So I'm, I'm going to send them to Christian schools. He even went to a seminary. And the agenda for the mom was for him to become a pastor. But Harry did not feel a call to being a pastor. Harry felt a call to business, and particularly he loved the food business. So he had a lot of experience in the brick business, and he had a lot of experience in the food business. What he did in the food business was took his mom's surplus produce and sold it. In some cases, they processed it and turned it into to, to condiments and other things that they could sell, ketchup, uh, horseradish, things of that nature, various sauces. And so he's got this spectrum of business experience, bricks and food. And then a mom wanting to be a pastor. So he's got all these confluence of factors going on. The Civil War comes along in the 1860s. We don't really know what happened with Henry there. We don't think he served in the Civil War. Uh, and back then, you could, uh, you could pay somebody to take your place. So it's very possible that the family paid somebody to, to keep Henry from having to, to serve in the, in the military. After the Civil War, when the country is recovering from this great disaster, and trying to move into a peacetime economy. You're trying to move from an economy driven by government debt to fund the, for, the war effort to now an economy that's driven by real profit from producing goods and services. So with that backdrop, Henry's still working for his dad, and there's a buddy, that one of his friends, working with his dad, and his name is Clarence. So Henry and Clarence get together, and they say, you know, love your dad, love the brick business, but you know, I don't love it that much. I'd really like to be, you know, in another business that I had passion for. So Henry says, you know what I really love? Clarence says, what? He says, I love the food business. Clarence says, really? Yeah, I do. In fact, my mom makes the greatest horseradish. He says, I think we could make this horseradish, and I think we could sell it all over the country. And so that gave birth to a company, a partnership between Clarence and Henry, where they began to sell this horseradish. They started out just their local community. They were in Pittsburgh. So the Pittsburgh area, and then gradually the greater Pennsylvania area, then up into the East Coast. And, and they're going great. In fact, from 1869, when they birthed the company, to 1875, that six-year period, they would have probably won one of the awards for the fastest-growing companies. You know, that's a big deal in our culture, the fastest-growing company. We really honor that. Well, they were sucked into that back then, too. 
They thought that was a big deal. But there's a problem with fast growing. And that is, if you grow too fast, you lose control. And so what happened then in 1875 was they began to lose control. But it wasn't just because they were fast growing. There were a number of factors that were playing into this. First of all was the recession of 1873, which they were very slow to recognize what was really happening. You know, they were reading the newspapers and everything, but their sales were still going up. So they didn't, they didn't read between the lines. They didn't realize those sales are not going to keep going up, that the recession is going to pull on it, and eventually those sales are going to top out and start going the other way. So they didn't see that. See, they were not sophisticated enough financially to recognize that. Another thing that was going on, there was a, a real miscommunication between Henry and Clarence. And by then, Clarence had brought in his, bro his brother, E.J., into the partnership. And so now, Henry had 37.5%, and Clarence had 37.5%, and E.J. had 25%. And so the three these three guys now were running this business, but basically what they did is, is they left Henry in Pittsburgh, and Clarence and E.J. went to Chicago to open up a Midwest operation. So they're, you know, they're really enamored with this fastest-growing company kind of thing. They were getting a lot of kudos in the newspaper, and everybody's enamored by, oh, this company's doing so great. They're letting it go to their head. Well, now, remember back in the, those days, there was no telephone. No cell phone, no texting, no email, none of that. So communication between Pittsburgh and Chicago was really tough. You know, yeah, you had a telegraph, but that was about it. Just short messages here and there. There wasn't any real dialogue that could go on unless they could physically get together, and that was a challenge because you were pretty much limited to the, the train routes. So they had a miscommunication. They were not able to really talk on a regular basis. Another thing they did, you know, when you, get, when you think you're hot stuff and you think you're really, you know, going great guns, you start, you start taking on more risk. So here's what they did. They said, you know, we're now making, we're now selling pickled vegetables, particularly pickles, which is a cucumber that's been processed to where it, it, uh, it lasts, is what we call pickles today. And that was a big product for them. And so they went to all the farmers that they had relationships with and said, hey, guys, we will guarantee you that we will buy your whole crop. We'll buy the whole thing. Don't worry about it. We'll buy every cucumber you produce. And so they entered into contracts with all these farmers to buy the whole cucumber crop of 1875. Well, you know something? 1875 was a great year for cucumbers. It was a bumper year for cucumbers. Okay? Another factor that was playing into this is that Henry, Henry's basically a sales and marketing guy. Yeah, he knows he's gone to school and learned how to do bookkeeping, and so he's doing the books. But you know when he's doing the books? On the weekends. Because he spends the rest of the time selling and marketing. And so he's really not too clued in to the financial statements. And he didn't have, you know, the kind of reporting we have today. Their reporting was very laborious. It was all by hand, very difficult to get the information. So you see all these factors are coming together. And... In the summer of 1875, you know that sales trend that was going like this? Started going like this. And you know, the cash demands to fill those future contracts was going like that. And so this fastest growing company in the nation began to suffer cash flow problems. No problem, we go to the bank, right? 
Well, guess what? The banks had realized that we were in a recession. And you know what banks do when things start going south? You know, they start calling notes and they don't loan anybody anything. And so suddenly, Henry discovered, hey, there's, there's no bank help. They're not there. And then so you go to your friends. Well, suddenly find out that, you know, when you don't have money, you don't have friends. So it becomes a really difficult situation throughout the fall of 1875. And so now, here's your discussion question. From 1869 to 1875, Harry and Clarence and E.J. built what seemed to be a successful, fast-growing food company. However, by late 1875, the company was bankrupt. The key factors that contributed to the company's demise were a thin capital base. They started out with very little capital. They were using as much debt as they could. Does that sound familiar? Okay. Futures contracts. Unequally yoked leadership. That is, they, the leaders were not on the same page. They were not communicating well. They didn't have the same agenda. A recession. The recession of 1873, which was driven by greed and speculation. You know what the greed and speculation was over? The railroads. The railroads were just beginning to go to spread across the country. Everybody wanted to be a rail, in the railroad business. You know, last 10 years, it's been mortgages. So, you know, it, there's always something to speculate in, always something to be greedy about. So that was the railroad. That was it. And finally, we have a banking crisis, so there's no credit at all. So here's your question. It's now January 1876. The company is bankrupt. Harry is bankrupt. He's unemployed. He's friendless. He's been publicly maligned. Just a little side story here. Along the way in late 1875 when things are going into the ditch, Harry's partners pull back and blame him for everything because he was the bookkeeper. Okay, He's the one that got him into trouble. One of his creditors accused him of fraud, accused him of taking assets out of the company and hiding them. He got put into jail for fraud. The, the newspapers came out and suddenly this darling of the business community is viewed as a villain. And very negative things have been said about him. It is a, it's a vicious, malicious attack on him. So he's been publicly maligned. He's been abandoned by all his friends. He has no job, no assets. He's not credit worthy. All right, what do you do? What do you do? Well, Henry's father was a basket case because he really didn't know the Lord well. And he all he saw was his empire falling apart. His son failed, and he didn't see any solutions. The economy's terrible. In fact, within a month, his brick business would totally fail because there just wasn't enough business. But Henry's mother was the stalwart of the family. She was the spiritual rock. She's the one that came to him on New Year's Day in 1876 and said, Son, God has a plan for your life. And I'm here to help you find it and help you do it. So what he did on that day that was probably the most significant thing is he put himself underneath his mother. Now, he is in his 30s at this time. But he knew that right now, more than anything I, I need, I need parents. I need to be submitted to godly parents. 
and I had this incredible woman. In fact, he said of his mother, well, he said of his father, my father taught me honesty, but he said, my mother was the reason I was a success. My mother gave me the spiritual foundation. She gave me the direction, the encouragement. She was my commissioning agent. She enabled me to do what I did. So he totally humbled himself that day and put himself under his mother. Now, you've got to understand from whence he's fallen. He was a rising star just a year before. There weren't enough accolades to be, you know, to describe him. In the newspapers, he was revered. In the community, he was revered. This guy was, you know, he was a superstar. And now, all of a sudden, he's a nothing. And so he humbled himself, put himself under his mother. His mother began to pray with him and counsel with him. And he says, Henry, there's a basic principle of Scripture. And you need to obey this principle. And that is you, you do whatever God has revealed to you. In other words, whatever you know, you do. It kind of reminded me of Luke 7, verse 30. And in that text, it says of the Pharisees that they, they knew of the baptism of John, and they knew that that was from God, and they knew they should do that. But the text says that they refused the baptism. And when they refused the baptism, they blocked the purpose of God in their life. I think that's what his mother was saying. God has given you revelation. You have a lot of biblical teaching. You have a lot of understanding. You're going to do what you know to do. So they began to talk, and he began to say, well, what, what is it that I know to do? Well, the first thing I know to do is I know to forgive. And i got a whole long list of people to forgive. First, these, these dirty, scoundrel partners of mine that abandoned me and blamed everything on me. And throughout the fall, when we needed money, and I'm scrambling to put every dime I could find in it, they're not putting a dime in it. They did nothing to help. So first he had to forgive them. Then there is the newspaper guy. The one that maligned him publicly, that put, you know, just made disparaging comments about his business skill, about his faith, and about Christianity. So he had to forgive that newspaper guy. Then he had to forgive all all of the people, all of his friends, that they were there as long as he had money, but when, we did, when he didn't have money, they vanished. They were no longer there to help him. Then he had to forgive himself for his own mistakes, for his arrogance, for his lack of understanding of business. See, he, you know, a lot of times we think we know more than we know, and so we run out and do stupid stuff. And we look back and think, why did I do that? Yeah, well, you thought you knew more than you knew. Okay, so he had to forgive himself. And he probably had to forgive God. And I know that's hard for some people to grab a hold of. But the reality is, if God's sovereign, on some level, you're asking, well, why don't you let this happen, God? I mean, this horrible thing. I mean, we had a good thing going. You know, God, I was tithing. You know, I made money, I gave you 10%. I mean, why would you do this to me? So you got to wrestle with that whole issue. And that's probably the most profound thing he had to do was to go through the forgiveness process. I don't know how long it took him. I suspect he spent days, if not weeks, with his mom, praying, seeking the Lord, working through that. So once they got to a place of peace, 
where he felt like he'd forgiven pretty much everybody who'd been connected to this thing. His mother says, okay, Henry, what's the next thing you know to do? He says, well, there are a bunch of creditors out there that didn't get fully paid. Yeah, all the assets of the company are being liquidated and they're being paid whatever that the assets will give them. And I'm, I don't have any money. I'm out of money. Personal property was sold. Back then, the bankruptcy laws did not protect personal property like they do today. So they literally lost their personal property. So, I mean, he had nothing. Barely had clothes to wear and a place to, to sleep. But his creditors still weren't fully paid. So he began to make a list of all his creditors, and he made a list of exactly what was owed to them. And then he, he said, okay, 37.5% of that obligation is mine. So he began to write them letters and tell them, I promise you I will pay you 37.5% of this outstanding balance. Well, it's not hard to believe that that really won him a lot of favor with a lot of, a lot of people. Because they saw this man really trying to walk with integrity, walk with honesty. And so the foundation began to be laid here now, spiritually. Now, practically, what does he do? Well, they took stock of what they had. They took stock of where their heart was. And Henry said, you know, I know the brick business, I know the food business, you know, and here's the deal. I don't really care about the brick business, but I love the food business. So... I need to do something in the food business. So they started looking around in, among the family and said, you know, we need to build this, whatever we build, based on the family. So the family is committed to each other and committed to working together for a common goal. We don't want to be unequally yoked like we were before, where Clarence and EJ had different agendas from us. They had different worldviews, different value system. Everything was different, and it did not work. We want an equally yoked situation here. So they began to come together and pool the resources. And pretty soon as they began to go around the dining room table and share what each one of them wanted to do and could do, everybody found a niche. There was one guy that, that loved the farming. He wanted to raise the crops. There's another guy that liked the producing of the products. And Henry was a natural salesman. Plus he could do the accounting, the bookkeeping. So they had everything covered from the ground all the way to selling to the, to the end user. And so they began to do what they could do. They began to make horseradish. That's something they, they knew how to do. They could do it easily. They could produce that uh, pretty quickly. So they spent most of the, of the spring of 1876 working hard as a family, producing horseradish and selling it in the local markets. Well, does it surprise you to know that the favor of God was on that? The total favor of God on it. The business just began to blossom. And... They could not explain it. It's like, wow, what's going on here? We, everybody's accepting us. Nobody's mad at us. Everybody's buying our product. They're paying us on time. The cash began to come in. And so Henry began going back to mom again, the spiritual parent. Mom, let me understand what God's doing here. Well, God is shining his favor on you because you're lining up with his will, son. This is what he does. When you do his will, there's favor. There's wisdom. There's discernment. You know, there's revelation, there's guidance. All the things that you need come by lining up with him. So he really, he really stuck close to the counsel of his mom. Now, you remember what 1876 was. It was the 100-year anniversary of the United States. Remember that? So it was a surprise you to know that they had a big centennial celebration. And where else would they have it but Philadelphia, right? And so... 
Henry's all excited. The cash flow is looking pretty good in the summer. He says, you know, Mom, I need to go to the centennial celebration. We need to have a booth there, and I want to go see what's going on. Henry was always a very inquisitive man. He always was looking for new ideas. So he went to the, the centennial celebration, and there he saw some amazing things. He saw tin cans for the first time. You see, all their packaging back then was mostly ceramic and glass. Well, he saw tin cans. He saw an automated system to actually, you know, fill the can up and seal it. So he was all enamored with that. And then he saw a brand new invention that at first he scratched his head about, and then he realized how he could use it. It was called the telephone. And he says, I know how we can use this thing. We can have a telephone in each of our plants. And that way we can communicate. Dealing with one of the major problems he had had with Clarence and EJ. So he quickly adopted the telephone. By the way, did you know the early business plan for the telephone did not call for the telephone to be in homes? Do you know that? Yeah. There was no vision for telephones in homes in 1876. It was all about this is a way to support business. The telephone was a business tool. It was not for personal use like we do it today. And he found a lot of other things there. found new product ideas. And um, he, just, he ran into people like uh, the Van Camps and discovered how to can beans. Ran into Lee and, Lee and Perrin and discovered about a steak sauce that would be really cool. He eventually would acquire that company. And so he, he gathered all these ideas and brought them back. And then that just laid the foundation for an explosive growth in this company. This company took off. And pretty soon, it was very clear that Henry was the leader. You see, when they first started out in early 1876, because Henry was in bankruptcy, he couldn't be an owner. So he wasn't even an original owner of this new company. The company was owned 50% by his wife, Sally. And by the way, today is Sally and Henry's 141st wedding anniversary. They were married on September 23rd of 1869. So this is a Harry and Sally story. So, so Harry, and, Harry and Sally, you know, they were so linked together. What, what Sally did to support her husband was she had a little piece of property with her family. She was able to sell that, take that capital, and put it into this new business. And she owned 50%, and then Harry's mom and two brothers each owned one-sixth, okay? So they owned the other half. And so Henry didn't even own a piece of the company. It was several years later when he finally was able to get an ownership interest in the company. It eventually became the president of the company. And the company grew and blossomed, and it, it exists today. It's still selling food products today. And you, you may recognize the name. In fact... Um, it probably would help you to know that John Henry, Henry's father, when they named their son, they just flipped the names around. So Harry's name was really, you know, Henry John, and the last name was Hines. And that's how the Hines Company got started. It's another great story, a testimony of how the reality is that the only thing that works in God's universe is biblical principles. That's the only thing that will produce lasting success. You know, they, Harry had an opportunity to, to do a company. He did it wrong the first time. He discovered that doing things non-biblically didn't work. Being unequally yoked, being undercapitalized, being arrogant, being inexperienced, being independent, being unsubmitted, all those things that he did in the first 
effort didn't work. And so he reversed those things his second time around. He submitted to authority. He got under his mother. And he walked out the reality of building a company based on biblical principles. By the way, along the way, one of his mentors, in fact, I would say he was probably his spiritual father, was a man by the name of John Wanamaker. Those of you that attended the executive forum some years ago heard the story about John Wanamaker. John Wanamaker is the father of the modern department store. When you walk into a department store today and you see a price tag on a product, you know why that price tag is there? It's because of John Wanamaker. John Wanamaker built his whole store based on the golden rule. Well, John Wanamaker was a few years older than Henry, and Henry and John met someplace. They may have met at that centennial exposition in Philadelphia, but they became close friends, and John Wanamaker mentored Hines, H.J. Hines. They both were, were subscribers to a management philosophy that was unusual for the day. You remember, those of you that have studied your history, you know that the common management philosophy of that day was the robber baron philosophy. That is, you, you abuse and use people. That's the whole point. People are just a tool for you to accomplish your agenda, which is to make money. Well, there was a gentleman there, and probably someday I'll tell you a story about him, so I'm not going to give you his name. But this gentleman was a mechanical engineer, and he saw the travesty of management, and he began to study management from a biblical perspective, and he developed a management theory called paternalistic capitalism. Well, that theory was adopted by John Wanamaker, and it was eventually adopted by H.J. Hines. And by the way, it was the same theory that was adopted by Thomas J. Watson, whom we talked about back in January. Paternalistic capitalism is based on the presupposition that a business management team should function like parents. And the employees are like children. Now, it's not disparaging the employees in any way. It's talking about how to be benevolent and kind and gracious and sensitive and treat them in a way that would really bless them. So he adopted paternalistic capitalism as his basic management philosophy, and I think you can see where it led the company. It became one of the truly great companies, not only of the 19th century, but of the 20th century. And I hope that we can learn from this lesson. We're in exactly the same situation today that they were back in 1875. We've got an economic calamity driven by greed and speculation. Are we going to turn to a biblical approach to business, driven by submission to authority, driven by obedience to the Word of God, or are we going to go back and do business as usual like the world does, which will just lead us to another economic crisis at some point in time? That's the challenge. So may God give us grace to face it and face the challenge like H.J. Hines did.